morning, church. The scripture today will come from three passages in Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Romans. And if you'd like to turn there with me, the first passage will be in Galatians 5, verses 5 through 6. Galatians 5. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And the second passage is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the last passage is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, some years back, several years now, I was um, reading a biography of St. Francis of Assisi. He was a monk from the 11th century, I think, and led one of the greatest revivals of the church in, on the European continent. And um, there was one, one, one of the things that Assisi was focused on was a complete rejection of worldliness. And the way he did that with monks was through poverty and obedience and service. So they would go out and just, they just walk through the fields and find somebody to serve that day. And they did it in complete poverty and in full obedience. And so one of the things they did to, to demonstrate poverty was that they didn't allow themselves any comfort in their clothing. And so they wore these habits that were made out of burlap, which is not particularly comfortable. And so there was, there was this one monk that actually got a sore on his side and it just wouldn't heal. And he'd wear this, like, this habit because nobody wanted him walking around monastery naked, you know? And, like, it just wouldn't heal because the burlap would rub against it and it just was awful. And so he, he finally came to St. Francis and he said, um, Brother Francis, can I sew for just one month a piece of rabbit fur on the inside of the habit so that it won't rub on this sore so that it's just it can heal? And uh, now you would think that would be a fairly simple request, but Assisi was so focused on, on authenticity and honesty and, 
that, that that was difficult for him. And he said, and so his answer was, he said, yes, brother, you can sew a piece of rabbit fur on the inside so long as you sew one of equal size on the outside. Because, yeah, you see, see where he's going with this? Like, as long as you're completely authentic about it, then sure, right? One of the things that is, that's embarrassing for me is that, you know, this series, I, I really believe in it. I've been working on this stuff for a couple of years, and um, one of the things that I started out just last week talking about was that our frustrations, our anxiety, our worry, our resentment towards God, all the things that seem to not work in our faith or in our lives, a huge portion of those Jesus actually told us about by telling us that, one of the, that probably the most predictable and biggest problem in our faith is what he calls serving two masters— God and the God Mammon, which is the God of worldliness, right? Later on, Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors called it, just called it worldliness. That is, leanness means to be like something. Worldliness means to be like the world. Godliness means to be like God, right? And so you can't be both. And so um, <clears throat> one of the things that I have looked at fairly closely is the idea of worry. And it, well, we don't like to be as unsophisticated as to say worry, so we say anxiety. Because it sounds more passive, you know what I mean? If I'm worrying, I'm in, it feels like I'm—that word sounds like I'm engaging in worry. If I just say, um, I, I have anxiety, it's, you know, it's passive, right? And I, there's nothing possible I could do about it, right? So— <clears throat> I really believe that if we, if, if we get rid of worldliness, it affects our, our worry and our anxiety, and it's the effects that those have on me. Yet, some of you know I was gone on sabbatical for, for 10 weeks, and it was really great. I rested, and I didn't feel stressed at all. It was so nice just hanging out with my family and sleeping like I should and stuff. But the week before I came back, I started having nightmares. And um, when I came back, last week was like my, my first main week preaching, right? Wasn't last week my first week back? Right, yeah. And so while I was preaching, I felt this huge pain, like, right under my rib cage, And there was a point where, like, I could hardly catch my breath. And I thought that, like, maybe I, developed, I was developing some kind of allergy because I was kind of feeling like this kind of dully all along. And I thought, you know, maybe it's—and, like, literally, there was a point last week where I googled um, mild heart attack symptoms, right? But I talked to uh, this female doctor in the church who's, um, who's talked to us about health stuff. And she's like, she's like, oh, it's, that's your stomach. That's not your heart. It's anxiety. And I'm like, I don't feel any of it. And, and she's like, well, you know, your autonomic nervous system does, you know? And it's just like, it's kind of humiliating when you're like the guy who wrote a book that says Jesus can deliver us from these things, including like our like seething anxieties. And, and then you're like, literally you come back to preach that series and you're having stomach problems that are apparently anxiety, even though you don't feel nervous at all ever when you talk publicly, right? Um, but, you know, that's the rabbit for on the outside. I don't know what to tell you, but here's the thing. It doesn't change the message at all. I'm not, I'm not going to justify myself to change the message. No, Jesus said that that's the issue. And I, I honestly very deeply believe that there, with, the, with, that, with this experience I'm having is evidence that there are big portions of my life that are dominated by my love of this world. And I fear to lose them, and I'm concerned about something that I don't even know I'm concerned about and don't want to believe I'm concerned about, and I have to find that, I have to deal with it, and it's going to maybe take me a while. And so just bear with me if, if I am still a sinner for a while while I'm your pastor. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now, Jesus was very direct about this. He said, listen, um, your eyes 
are this organ by which your, light, your body takes in light. Your eyes are the only part of your body that can take in light and by which you can see. And if you can see, then your whole body benefits from your ability to see. You don't run into stuff. You don't bang your head on things, right? You don't walk out in front of traffic. And so if your eyes can see, your whole body benefits from it. If your eyes can't see, right, it's not your eyes that run into stuff, right? It's not mainly your eyes that suffer from your blindness. It's the rest of your body. And that darkness is a great— terrible darkness because all of you is destroyed by it. And so he said, he said, listen, spiritual life is like that. If you can discern, if you're able to see things for what they are, on the basis of the truth of the gospel, everything of your spiritual life is is healed and helped and strengthened and directed by that. And if you don't, if you can't see spiritually, if you can't discern what's going on, what's really there, you can't see anything. And that confusion creates an enormous amount of darkness all in in your life, all through it. And so the most fundamental thing about living in the Spirit, living for Christ, being spiritually substantial, is being able to see right? And he says, this is the most important, right? The very next sentence is the most important thing you have to see. And he says, this is what you have to see. No one can serve two masters. That's the first and most fundamental truth about spiritually seeing, is that there isn't anyone, there is no being in all of existence that has the capacity to serve two masters, God and mammon. Now, modern translations translate it money. The word is mammon in the original text. And, and it's the only time it's used in the Bible. And it's because Jesus is specifically using a word for money that, is, that, that personifies it as a god. And he's like, there's two gods. There's everything wrapped up in the world that you love and that you find your life in. And there is, and there is God. And they are not the same. And you can't serve them both. And if you try to serve them both, you will be spiritually blind. Because worldliness will cloud everything that you see and think. And your whole life— will be full of that darkness. But if you can see, if you will accept that truth, the light of spiritual life can come into your eyes and you can see and your whole life will be full of that light. Right? And then a few verses later, he says, now, um, once you get past this worry and you realize that God cares for you, and he will care about your physical needs if you think about him, he says, this is what you need to do if you want to do that. He says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. So you don't actually have to worry about your clothes and your food and all your other needs. You need to will one thing. Serving God and having God as your master essentially means that in Christ you will, you will one thing. Jesus, his kingdom, and his righteousness. And then everything else in your life will take care of itself, partly because you will be able then to take care of everything in your, else in your life properly. And you'll be connected to other people in a similar way. Does that make sense? Now, what that means is that we have to see it and leave it. We have to discern what worldliness is. We need to leave it. We need to be sanctified or set apart to to God and away from this thing called worldliness. We need to try to leave worldliness behind in Christ and become godly in Christ. And that does not look like we think it's going to look— but it's very, very um, concrete. I want to I want to show you a video here about a couple that came to our marriage conference we did in February. So we did this marriage conference in February. There's a lot of people in their 20s, kind of getting engaged and dating, getting married at High Point. And so part of one of the messages I gave was this whole like wait to get serious about somebody till you're 26, get married when you're 28, have your first child at 32 is all, is of the world. It's all of the world. 
and it's destroying our ability to create real families, to have kids young enough. Now listen, for some people, they just don't find the right person, honestly. They don't find an adequate person to marry until they're like 46. Like, I'm not talking about that. I just mean that like, we don't even start looking seriously for an adequate person to marry until we're 25, because like, we could never do that, right? But all dating that's Christian is looking for a suitable person to self-sacrificially commit ourselves to permanently. There's no such thing as Christian romance in any meaningful sense that isn't seeking that. Right? And there's a hospitality to receive children from God and pass on life, and all of that is all wrapped up in what it means to be one. And so the idea of waiting till wives are infertile to start trying to have children— Right? There's a story in the Women's Studies Department at Berkeley where there were these younger—there was this— I mean, atheist—almost everybody in the room was an atheist, and the women's studies professor was like, was talking about her infertility problems and the infer- all the infertility clinics she went to and all the problems that she could, and all the girls were kind of like looking at her smugly who were in this, in this PhD program, and she said, oh, 65% of you are going to be right here. Because they're all waiting until they were 34 to have children. Right? And so I basically was like, just don't do that. You can still have a career and all that kind of stuff, but don't, just don't get on the world's pattern. Like, that's how you should live your life. That's all of the world. It's all about money and freedom and living for yourself. And that's what, that's, that's all about that. And don't buy into it. And so there was this one couple, and they, they just went out to the car, and they're like, crap. <laughs> and then they tried to walk away from that, and then God doubled down on them. And it got even more interesting. And so I want you to see what it looks like to try to discern, be sanctified from, sanctified to, and see just how concrete and real that can get really fast. My name is Hillary Flesh. And my name is Matt Flesh. And, and this, this is, is this is Ada. <laughs> she's three months old, almost four months old, and she's very cute. I can feed her. Do you want to feed her? You can feed her. Okay. Okay, and then she'll be a happy kid. Come on, bugger. You're so close. She gets the 330 hangries. We didn't have kids in the five-year plan. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's okay, though, right? <laughs> When we, when we got married, I was thinking, okay, we'll have kids probably when I'm around 30. I'll be established in my career as a nurse, etc. And then we went to the marriage conference in February. And so after that marriage conference, honestly, we like were sitting in our car looking at each other and we were like, What are we doing? Uh, kids. You know, like, because all of our reasons why we wanted to wait to have kids were, like, kind of selfish. Like, I wanted to see the world. But then after the marriage conference, we kind of looked at each other and we were like, okay, we're gonna, like, think about having kiddos, like, in the next, maybe, year. So, Ada was born in May to a relative of mine, and she got taken directly into foster care from the hospital. So it wasn't until really the family reunion that we started thinking about, well, maybe we could be um, a permanent home for Ada. Because we, we had talked about doing adoption at some point, again, no specifics, and we talked about having kids, but again, not right now. We started praying about it. But I remember, I remember you saying in the hotel room, you were like, okay, we'll pray about it, but we're not actually going to do this, Hillary. Like, don't get your hopes up. Like, we'll pray about it, but we're not going to actually do this. And I'm just like, okay, okay. I think we just decided, okay, we're going to take 
one step at a time and basically just wait for God to slam the door. Everything just moved really, really, really quickly. Like we, we inquired about her for the first time on July 17th and then we picked her up August 10th. So like three weeks. So it was very quick, but good, right? I think for both of us, we've really started to trust more that God will provide what he has for us in his own timing. When we have these stories to look back on, it really it really helps us to remind each other when we have a rough day or a rough night where it is up all night, we can turn to each other and remind each other that remember God's in this and God has provided for us and so we will continue to provide. When we begin to realize that what it really looks like to follow Jesus has to include seeking the freedom of godliness, of real spiritual substance, and we realize that we need to leave worldliness behind and seek real godliness, there's at least three fears we've been trained to believe. And the reason we've been trained to believe that is um, worldliness or the God mammon does this, what every spy does, what every liar does, and they accuse the other people of what's true about them, Right? And so worldliness is always accusing godliness of what's true about worldliness. So worldliness will accuse godliness and say, look, you know, if you become more religious, like if you really commit yourself to will one thing in Jesus, and you commit yourself fully to him, and you don't find your life in worldliness, it's going to make you that really bad kind of religious, like that can't have any fun and is mean to other people, and like everything's wrong, and you've got like a million rules, right? The problem is, is that if you actually read the Bible— in Matthew 6, Jesus explicitly says in verses 1 through 18 that that's actually the product of worldliness. People seeking to be religious for utterly worldly reasons. And so worldly religiousness looks like that terrible kind of religiousness we all hate. Now think about this. If somebody's a religious hypocrite, they're religious in all the wrong ways, how does that happen in the human heart? Well, it happens for one of two reasons. Either it's all a show for what you can get from people. So for example, when I lived in Panama City, Florida. See, in Madison, being a Christian doesn't get you anywhere culturally, okay? We all know that, right? But when, when I lived in, when I lived in, Ma when in Pan Panama City, Florida, being a Christian got you something culturally, right? Like, we had, we had people who were, like, in local politics who were members in our church, even though I don't know if they believed in Jesus at all, but because they could say that they were a member of First Church, blah, 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 that was a large church in the city, and, like, that got you credibility with people. And so Jesus says, you know, part of the, the reason why people pray the way they do and, like, Fast, like openly, like, oh, I'm so hungry because I love Jesus so much, and like give like it's marketing rather than anonymously because they really want to help people. The reason they do that kind of worldly religious stuff is because they want to get in good with people. There's nothing spiritual about that. That's completely worldly, right? And the other reason why people are religious hypocrites is because they're willing two things, not one. So they're like, okay, I still want to keep the world. I still want to be like a jerk and mean and angry at people, and yet I want to go to heaven or something. And so like, what group of religious stuff can I do that if I do that stuff, God will think I'm fantastic, and I cannot do any of the real character transformation stuff. And then in order for me to believe I'm a good person, I've got to like morally really defend this stuff. So I get hypocritical and legalistic surrounding the little religious things I want to do to make me feel good. Well, meanwhile, I'm still like a jerk and licentious and like, my heart is just totally given over to worldliness. You see, 
the reason why people are religious in ways that are horrifically ugly is because, not because their religion is spiritual, it's too spiritual, it's because it's too worldly. And that's what Jesus said as clearly as you could possibly say it, right? The second fear is that we're afraid we're going to be weak and naive. Like religious people are always falling for stuff. They're so gullible. That's true. People who are worldly in their religion or people who are just worldly are incredibly naive. There are ways to be religious where you don't really deal with the sinfulness of your own heart and you don't really deal with the holiness of God. And because of that, your view of yourself and of God are so shallow that when you look at the world, you see it in an incredibly shallow way. And that makes you come up with simplistic little theologies about how everything's going to be fantastic and how people should be nice. And then when they're not nice, you get, end up taken advantage of and you get treated in really terrible ways. And you're like, wait a second, religion's supposed to make them nice and it's supposed to make my life nice. What's going on? That's just, that's just worldliness. Right? Jesus said that if we believed in him and let him teach us, he would make us what? Innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Um, in terms of our ability to deliver on things that are hard, only people of character can do that. And Jesus is making people of substance. Virtue is built on the Latin word for strength, vir. It is moral, spiritual strength. Real godliness makes extraordinarily wise, extraordinarily realistic, and extraordinarily strong people. It's worldliness, worldly religion, and worldly irreligion that makes us weak and naive. But our real, deeper fear is this. That if we get rid of all the things in worldliness that we really believe are our life, the things we love so much, and we really commit ourselves to, to will one thing, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, we don't believe we're really going to make it. We don't really believe we're going to become that kind of righteous. And we'll miss that thing and we'll have lost everything else. We'll have bet everything on the thing we're never going to really have, and it's just, our life is just going to be a mess, and we're going to lose, lose. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus was so clear that if, you, that if you and I would repent and believe, if we would trust him, if we would throw aside worldliness and mammon, if we would follow him for him to make us godly, if we give ourselves to him, we cannot fail because he will do it, right? He says in Matthew 5, 6, he says, blessed are those, that is, those who, who are this thing will be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? For they will be filled. That is passively speaking. To be filled is a passive action. He says, if you give yourself to faith, to believe and that you hunger and thirst after real righteousness, not self-righteousness, but real rightness of heart and spirit and being integrity of heart. God will fill you with it. And if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he will give you everything else you need as well. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah is speaking about the time of the Messiah, of his redemption. He says, 
the people who come to me, whose lives are broken, he says, I will provide those who grieve in Zion, that is the city of God, and I'll bestow upon them, that's passive, I will give it to them, beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. That's really close to exactly what the father gives the prodigal son. Right? The ring, the robe, and the party. Right? That's what redemption does. But I want you to notice something. These people who have been so horrifically victimized by others because of their own sin. So they did this to themselves, and it was done to them by others. God doesn't stop at encouraging and, and re-lifting up and binding up and even giving graciously to these people. He says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. That is, the very people who were victims and destroyed under their own sin, the very people he has to save, the very people he lifts up, the very people he gets back to zero, he doesn't leave there. He brings them forward and he says, these are the very people that not only I will call oaks of righteousness, but other people who might be entirely godless will look and see what I've done to these people, what I've made them into, and they will call them. They will say, look, those people are oaks of righteousness. In modern terms, it would be skyscrapers. Those people are skyscrapers of righteousness. God built them. God planted them. Do you see the focus on God? God will do this, right? Jesus calls you to himself. Repent and believe and trust and walk and throw off worldliness and set your heart on him. Will one thing, and he will fill you with righteousness. Take care of everything else you need. He will give you beauty instead of ashes and give you joy instead of mourning and he will make you into an oak of righteousness and he will do it. You don't have to be afraid where God will take you. Right? Same thing in Galatians, Paul says, we, we wait the righteous, the spirit will give us the righteousness for which we hope. And in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, we need to remember that just because something is gracious does not make it easy, right? We've said over and over again that spiritual substance is a sweaty business to seek. It is full of gracious striving. And Jesus says, listen, if anybody wants to come after me, if he will will one thing, if he'll seek my kingdom and my righteousness alone, he says, listen, it's going to take this to be his disciple. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Because what good is it to try to save the whole world and lose yourself? Because that's what sin does in making us shallow and brittle and weak. We're actually losing ourselves in sin. We're becoming these husks, right? Like when, the, when a bug like grows too big for its skin and it breaks itself out and it leaves that little, that little husk behind and that's all that's left and the, the life of the thing is gone— that's, that's what damnation is. That's what sin is, wants to do to you. That is the end of it, is that it's not just you're damned. You're not even really you anymore. Like, the you that you were meant to be, the, the image-bearing, complex, beautiful, virtuous, joyful, filled being that you were meant to be, bearing the dignity of the beauty of God, there's just nothing left of it anymore. That's what worldliness will do. That's its goal in us. That's all that mammon leaves behind because it devours every other part of our being. But Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Come after me. And when you do, you're going to have to flee worldliness. You're going to have to deny yourself. 
and you're going to have to take up your cross. It's going to feel like dying because we believe, listen, you and I believe that our life is in our, our worldliness. All of our plans, all of our godless assumptions, all of our selfishness, all of our <clears throat> unwarranted dreams about how our lives are going to turn out, all, all that stuff is what we really believe our life is in. And so at any moment where you say, I'm going to burn that all to ashes and leave it behind, and I'm going to go after the one who goes to the cross, every single time that's going to feel like you getting handed a cross because you're going to go get executed. It feels like dying every time, and how often do you get to do it? Every day. And that's a euphemism for like as often as necessary, which might be like every 20 minutes. Like when you realize that worldliness has crept back in or that you've never really left it, it's, it's going to take more than daily. It's going to be like every 20 minutes for a while. Like if you get really advanced in faith, you might get to daily. Okay? Because even though it's, it's utterly graciously given and God will do it, it is still full of gracious striving. Becoming a person of spiritual substance is still a sweaty business. Does that make sense? Now the, the question then is, is like, okay, so— is there more how that you could give me? Like, how do we actually do that? How do we seek his righteousness and his kingdom? And how do we seek to will one thing? And how do we, how do we do that? And so the answer is yes, flee worldliness and seek godliness. How do you seek godliness, right? And so in the book, we talk about four, th I talk about four things, right? Self-sacrificial love, having the mind of Christ, having virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, you could say more than that, but the reason I picked those four things is because they're kind of different from each other. They're, they're different enough that it fills out as completely as possible the different kind of areas of righteousness, right? How we think, the, the passion, the center of exactly what we're focused on, the kind of character it requires, and how we improvisationally live in every day-to-day, -day, right? Those four things. And then we'll talk about in the last couple of weeks the practices or the mindsets that'll help us. So this morning we're going to talk about these two, and we're already halfway through, so I'm, I'm not just starting, okay? So the first is that the goal of substance is self-sacrificial love. That that's what we're doing. That is the end of everything that we do, is real love, and real love is always self-sacrificing for the true good of another. Now, the way, um, the way I'm going to talk about love is going to make some of you angry, Especially if you haven't read the book and already know some of what I'm going to say because <clears throat> Well, you'll you'll feel it in just a minute. Okay, so when you think about What it means to have spiritual substance I say so what what does spiritual substance look like and the answer is always in Sunday school, right? The answer is Jesus Right, and that's true. But here's the problem with that um, When you look at Jesus with worldly glasses on what ends up happening is the picture of him gets distorted towards what you already believe. Like, have you ever wondered why you really believe that if you had lunch with Jesus, it would be like a mutual admiration session? Like, you would be talking about what you think, and Jesus would be like, I know! I know! I know! Totally! I know! Right? And that's, that's probably not how that lunch would go. At all. But we think that because the, the problem with saying when we're, when we're full of worldliness, oh, godliness looks like Jesus, is we have such a worldly picture of Jesus that until that gets fixed, it doesn't really help. Because we just think Jesus wants to affirm everything that's already true about us that we love. 
So the answer might be the Bible because the real Jesus is revealed in his life, death, and resurrection in the written scriptures. And so you could say, well, maybe the Bible's the answer. But the Bible is like the puzzle we're, p- we're putting together. It, it's not itself a summary. It's kind of a summary of all being, but it's, it's kind of long. It's not actually that long. I mean, you can master the Bible. It's, it's just a little book. But generally speaking, if you're find yourself, you know, neck deep in worldliness, you know, you probably don't have a good handle on the whole thing, and you kind of wish you could have a box top to put that puzzle together. Well, the, the good news is that the Bible has within itself summaries that help us understand the rest of the Bible. Like, for example, in Romans 13, it says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, and there's like six or seven hundred of them, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay. So what this tells us, right, is that if you summarize everything that's going on in the Bible— that you can summarize all of its moving motivation to love. Okay? Now, that's just about as bad as Jesus in the Bible. Because what do we distort, and what is more easily distorted than the concept of love? Which is why we need to understand how this passage shows the interdependence between love and commandments. You see, what the, what the passage is teaching us is that there is this relationship between love and the commandments. So it's one thing to say that love fills out, the, is the motivation for all the laws, right? He says, listen, love your neighbor as yourself is the most fundamental summary. And so all the other laws, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't, right? All of those are outworkings of love. But what does that also mean? It, the reverse is also true. That the commands are explanations of concrete means by which love is given. Which means this. If you ever allow yourself to think or feel that you are being loving, while you are directly transgressing a biblical command, it means you're lying to yourself and you're confused about what love is. That's what it means. If you convince yourself that like, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend or having an affair or stealing from work or whatever, like, you're just like, but I just really love that person and they love me back and my spouse doesn't really act like they love me. And this, it's not, no, it isn't love. You can call love all you want. First Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice in evil, takes no delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth that it always hopes, always prevails. That it's always true to its covenants. That it's stable, right? And so that's really really inconvenient to our sense of worldliness because we would be happy to say like, oh, love is the center of everything. That's so so good, right? And so then anything I want to say is love, then now I have God's stamp on. Like, we talk about how, like, historically, like, religion did bad things because people had certain political views or wanted to take land, and they stamped God's authority on it. How is that any different than the way this entire city lives, how we all do whatever we want and stamp love on it and then say, God is loving, and so God is for whatever I'm doing? There's no difference in logic. We might not be lopping off quite as many heads, but we are wrecking each other's life almost as horribly, and you can't really see how bad it is because it's kind of hidden under a couple levels of muddled logic. But 
we go around wrecking each other's lives, saying, well, it's what we want. It's what's authentically happening in my heart. It must be love. And if God is love, then God must be for it. And, you know, the preacher can talk about, like, God's commands and blah, blah, blah. But that's all just legalism anyway. It's not. All the commands are examples of love. Everything that transgresses the commands transgresses love. You cannot talk about love apart from what love looks like in real practice. And because we're the kind of creatures we are, we need the constant reality check of the law. You want to find out what's true about love? For God's sakes, do anything but look inside your own heart. I mean, you want to, you want to come up with the most ridiculous, inauthentic, neighbor-destroying life you can possibly come up with, you know, look, at, look inside yourself. And it's not like there's nothing good in your heart. It's just the heart is so desperate. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it but God? It's too jumbled. There are good intentions and bad intentions and confused intentions, and there's drives and instincts and hormones and, like, fears from childhood, and it's all mixed together. And you think you can go to a psychotherapist to sort all that out? You might learn how to not scream at your mom when you visit home, but you're not sorting yourself out, Okay? It's not happening. What you can do is look at the psychologically perfect one and move towards him and allow God to work healing inside of you through means that you can't even decipher. But if you want to know what love is, look at the commands of the Bible and then reckon with the fact that Jesus says, those are loving, not me and not you. And you must conform to love as shown in them, and then you'll become loving. Right? And the same is also true of virtue. Right? Like, I remember when I was 18 and I, I got in the car with this pastor that was supposed to be mentoring me. We had a complicated relationship. And he said, Nick, he was from Texas, Nick, is love an action or a feeling? Right? And I was like 18, and I knew the answer he wanted, right? Love's an action. It's not a feeling. It's not just sentiment. It's like something you do, right? And he was like, right on. But I knew darn well that if I got home from wherever we was going, I went up and proposed to my girlfriend, now my wife, and said, you know, I, I want to just, I like, action you. Like, I would, like, like, I don't feel anything, but like, I'm going to be your husband if you'll marry me. I'll just, I'll like, I'll, I won't leave. I'll be around. I think you're fine. Right? Like, she would be like, um, no, thank you. Because you just know that, like, love is supposed to have a fire in it. There's got to be feeling. There should be deep, and not just romantic feeling. Like, I'm not just talking about quivering loins. I mean, like, a passion for the good, the true, the beautiful, the right. Right? I mean, that's why it says in the Bible, love what is good and hate what is evil. Because what is true, right, and good, it should do something inside of you. It should, like, it should it turn your heart over. You should feel something, right? But love isn't a feeling, and love isn't an action. Okay? Love is a virtue. Love is a mark of character, a, a mark of right being. It's a moral strength. Love is a moral strength. And if it exists inside of you, it comes forth in passion. You'll feel something because your being is right. And so when your being comes up against something beautiful, your being says, that's beautiful. 
And when your being comes up against something that is unjust, your being goes, that's terrible! You'll feel something. And listen, some of you watch so much TV and use so much pornography and just like eat whatever you— like your life is so driven by like these like little urges and you realize you don't really feel anything deeply anymore. And it's because it's virtue that makes you feel. It's life, it's strength that makes you feel. And you just got much of it, and you just don't hardly feel anything, and you don't even know what to do. This is what you do. You seek his kingdom and his righteousness. You will one thing, Jesus the Christ. You set your heart on him, and he'll start to form something in you that's strong. And it will make you feel, and you will reliably act, And the virtue love will have right feeling and right action, and it will be great. And the thing is, people want to believe that they can just be like, just be loving. And, you know, like, I don't, well, I'll just talk of virtue. Isn't that very, like, Victorian or something? Well, no, it goes back at least to Aristotle in the Western tradition, which was a little bit before the Victorian era, right? I mean, it's like a few thousand years old people have been talking about this. And the, the problem with this is you cannot have virtue without the virtues. You can't—see, here's the thing. All of the virtues of personal substance, of spiritual and moral substance, all the virtues that are found in Christ are all fundamentally interdependent upon each other. And they all rely on each other. So you can't have just one. You have to have all of them. Because whichever one you're lacking drains the strength out of the one next to it. And that one fails, and then it drains all the strength out of the one next to it, and that one fails— and it works its way around. They all rely on each other. So you, you can't really be tolerant without a certain kind of friendliness and cheerfulness, right? Tolerance requires that, but you can't, you can't really be friendly without a certain kind of honesty because you can't be a friend of someone if you don't tell them the truth, right? You have, to be, you have to open yourself to them and be truthful, but you can't really be honest with somebody without recognizing they deserve the truth from you. There's certain things that another human being, because they're a human being and you're a human being, that they deserve from you. One of those is honesty. Another is cheerfulness. Another is kindness, right? And that's justice, that they—you give them what they deserve from you, right? But without understanding that you're—you have a shared humanity in this existence, without a proper compassion, you won't feel and sense a deep connection to the imperative of justice. You might know it's there, but you won't care enough to do anything about it, right? And so—but in order to have compassion, there's a certain amount of patience you have to have for idiotic people. Because if every time anybody does something stupid, you're just like, oh, I hate them, right? You ha- and you have no patience, you can't stick with them long enough to realize they're a human being. That's why we hate all of each other on Facebook. Facebook, right? Because all we see is that stupid article they posted by so-and-so, and that's all they are to us. They're that tiny little caricature. They're like, that stupid person believes that blah, blah, blah theory. And blah, blah, blah. Right? And, be- and so we don't even hang with them long enough to realize that, like, they're this whole human being, that there's a lot of things true about them. They're almost just like you in a hundred different ways. And because we don't have any humility and we don't have any patience, right? And here's the thing. In order to be patient with somebody long enough, you have to have some tolerance. You have to be like, look, they're going to be different from me. Those people are going to be different from you. They're going to say stuff that's going to annoy you. And you just have to blow it off. You have to be like, the, the Bible explicitly says that it's a mark of humility to overlook offenses. Like the whole culture of like, you said something wrong. I'm like really angry now. It's completely unbiblical. It's the opposite of biblical humility. Biblical humility says, you say something racist to me, and I go, I don't think I agree with that. But I don't get all upset. I'm like, hey, let's talk about this because I think what you said is really dumb, right? 
but I'm not upset. I'm not, I, I can overlook the offense, especially if somebody criticizes me. Like, people criticize me, right? Which you're supposed to just be like, oh, huh. Maybe that's maybe part of that's true. Right? Offense is separating. And so the point here is, is that goodness and spiritual substance is a little bit like a wheel, like a bike wheel. These work the best when they're round. And they, then they roll, and it's easy, right? Now, see, the, w- when we're lacking in spiritual substance, it's more like a square, okay? Now, imagine how much emotional and motivational energy you have to put in to torque a square over. It's like, thump, hmm, thump, hmm, thump, hmm, thump. And you're like, man, it is so hard to be good. It's so hard to be nice to people. It's so hard to not, like— Spray my kids with a garden hoe. It's just so hard. Life is so hard. And it's not. It's we're so weak. Because you see, to get, to get the strength of your virtuous life circular, you have to have the spokes that are all in their right place in the proper tension with each other. And so when humility and compassion and patience and peacefulness and cheerfulness and friendliness and kindness and honesty are all there in their proper place, supporting each other and in the proper tension with each other. Because as the Greeks noted, every virtue has an excess and a deficiency. So you can be too friendly and be a people pleaser or something, and you can be not friendly enough and just be like ornery. Like every virtue has a—so it's got—they all have to be in the right tension, the right amount, and they all have to be there. And when that's there, it's round! And the thing just rolls, and you're like, this is not as hard as it used to be. I feel like—and like you'll find yourself loving people that are like harder to love than you were ever able to love, and it's not even—it doesn't exhaust you. And of course, it isn't—it isn't square right to round, right? Like if you've ever fixed a bike tire that got off— you know, you, you, you keep tweaking it until it, they all pull back to true. And so with that, here's what that means. This is why I said some of you will be angry with the way I talk about love. What that means is, is that, see, see a lot of people say, <laughs> they'll say, Nick, you got all this religious stuff, and we got to know the Bible, and there's Jesus, and the theology, and blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, you say it's love. It's supposed to be love. Why don't we just, let's just love each other? Can't we just love each other? I mean, like, maybe the hippies got something right, and we should just, like, put flowers in our hair and just love each other, right? And here's the problem with that. That assumes that love is really the simplest thing on planet Earth. And actually— it's the most complicated thing on earth. You see, once you realize that love isn't the explosion of your, like, personal empathetic sentiment towards someone else, but when you realize that love is a commitment of being to the true good of another, with the virtue of love at the central hub of all the virtues, rightly intentioned, rightly balanced, and that it's full godliness in all these ways that allows you to unleash the fullness of love in all its action, in all its passion, knowing what to do, what is in the true good of the other person instead of their false good, what is truly morally beautiful, what to commit yourself to, what you should resist, what you—that's actually the most complicated thing in the world. Love is the hardest thing. And the problem with that is— you see, that bothers you, but think about this. It's also the most exciting thing. Think about it. To do true right to other people. To act at every moment in their real good. 
to know at what point they need you to confront them, at what time you need to hug them, at what time you need to, like, put aside your plans and serve them, or at what time you need to say, sweetie, you need to take care of this one yourself. You've been relying on me too much. At what point you need to speak the truth, and what time you need to give a lot of—like, all of those things are complicated, but that's where all the excitement is. That's what being a grown-up is. That's what maturity looks like. That's how moral beauty is born, and it's why you find love so hard. Because love is hard. It is the hardest thing there is. And it is the thing you were made to do. And it's not the simplistic, ridiculous thing that the world says it is. It's something much more exciting, but much richer and we have to make sure it's not deeper beyond our, too deep for our reach. Okay. So then, okay, so good heavens then. Like, how do I get there from here? Like, if love is that hard, like, the mind of Christ is going to be way out of bounds, right? Like, now I have to be able to think all of God's thoughts. <laughs> we just got through love being impossible. Now I have to think all of God's thoughts. That's not what the mind of Christ means. The mind of Christ means that you know, through the work of the Spirit and growth in spiritual substance, what God has a mind to do. What is on his mind and what he has a mind to do. The way he thinks about the things that are in our lives. It doesn't mean you know everything God knows. Right? Now, um, there's three passages that we've talked about here. The first is, is that the Apostle Paul says that in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. And it changes our judgment about everything, right? It says— here, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, meaning that when the Spirit is working the mind of Christ in us, it actually l- changes everything we think. Everything we think about, everything in the world changes. And because of that, people who think without that Spirit and that work of Christ in them, and they think according to the pattern of this world, they think the way we think is foolishness. Okay? So, so if, if you think a certain way, and all of your friends that don't love Jesus at all think that you think completely straight— like, they're, they, they're never like, that's really weird what you're doing. Then you probably are really worldly. What should happen is, is that Jesus should change the way you think about basically everything, and that people who do not think according in line with Christ and the Spirit should think a lot of the things you think are kind of foolish. It's actually a good sign. And it says they have no authority to judge you because they can't even think the way you're thinking. They don't have the ability to do it. Right? Because who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? The answer to that is, of course, nobody. And then he contradicts it in the next line, but we have the mind of Christ. Well, just, wait. Because what he's saying, he's saying, the only person, he says this in the following verses, the only person who has the mind of the Lord is literally the mind of the Lord itself, his spirit within him, which is the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes to us in Christ, the Holy Spirit doesn't just regenerate your spirit. He doesn't just bring forgiveness. He doesn't just... Um, come to live within you and be with you so that you're never alone. He also brings with you the very consciousness of God himself, what is on God's mind and what he has a mind to do. And he comes to teach that to us. And that only comes when we believe in Jesus and receive salvation, which includes receiving the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes the mind of Christ, what God has on his mind and what he has a mind to do. And that is part of our inheritance. It's part of the gift. It's what sets us free from the domination of the world. Otherwise, you'll believe in Jesus. You'll still be a slave. 
But then in chapter 3, Paul says, after saying all this about what we receive in Christ, he's like, but I've been hanging out with you guys, and you don't believe any of this. You have the mind of Christ, that is, you've received it in the Spirit, but you don't have the mind of Christ, that is, you don't live like you have thought things through again in Christ. And so what we have is a gracious, generous inheritance from coming to Jesus has to be applied. In Romans, he says it this way. You, if you believe in Jesus, what worship looks like is you give yourself as a living sacrifice. So a normal sacrifice would have been killed, cut up into pieces, and burned on an altar. So your, your life is being used up, right? You can't help it. You're getting older every day. You're, you're careening towards death. Your life is being used up. This day is being used up. Okay? You are being burned up. The difference is, is that you're being burned up alive. Okay? You're, you're, the, you're a living sacrifice. And so the way you're being given is while you're being burned up, because you can't stop yourself from aging, is you can, in these moments that you have, you can give them fully to God. You understand? Now he says, if you're going to do that, two things have to happen. You have to be unconformed. You have to no longer conform to the pattern of this world. Now that's really important, the word pattern. Because we often think that like, oh, worldliness is like sinning. Like if I, if I do sins, that's worldliness. No. Worldliness is a whole systematic pattern of everything. It's the whole—it's the fabric of how you think. Ever since we were born, we're born into a world that does not see God the way it must. It, it's creation separated from the Creator. And so all of the weaving of all of our thoughts as children, everything is all woven together in this pattern of the world, and it needs to get all unwoven. And it needs to get completely rewoven. That is, your mind has to be transformed. And the result of that is not that you know everything God knows. The result is right there in the verse. The result is, is that if this happens, then the result, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, the result is you'll know in your life, in real time, while you're being this living sacrifice, what you should do. Which answers what question? The question of love. Because as you're being this incredibly complex <laughs> group of virtues trying to seek what is in the true good of others, if you can know what God's will is, God's will is always going to be loving, right? It's always going to be the, the right connection of these virtues, and so you'll know what to do. And you don't have to have Aristotelian perfection in the interrelation of all virtues in your mind. Christ will teach you through his spirit what God has on his mind and has a mind to do, and he'll build that into the transformation of your mind, and you will know how to love, and it will be built into you in virtuous freedom, and in the specific moments of your life, you'll know how to keep in step with the spirit. You'll be strong. But that can only happen specifically when we give ourselves fully to him, when we set our minds on Christ and things above and set our hearts on things above. Stick with me just two more minutes here. Band, you guys can start coming up, actually. What this comes down to is not, first, how disciplined you are. It has to do with what you set your heart and mind on, right? Paul says it this way. He says, set your heart and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he doesn't say, look to Jesus. Now he could have said that, and other biblical authors do say that. But what he says is, actually look to the things above. The whole, the whole cosmic 
heavenly sphere of them. And the reason why he uses that metaphor is because he's not talking about just Jesus the Savior. He's talking about the world in which Jesus lives in heaven, which is not according to the pattern of this world. It's entirely according to the pattern of heaven. So it is the King Christ sitting in the midst of this new globe of truth, all interrelated to him, all perfectly spoke, intentioned, and balanced, so that everything makes sense together. And that's what you're looking at, and your heart is set on it because you want to feel right about it, and your mind is set on it because you want to see the interconnections and reweave the fabric for the transformation of your mind so that you will see who he really is, how all things relate in Christ, and to set your mind and heart so deeply on them that it so banishes worldliness that you don't just sweep the floor, you wipe the whole thing down with bleach because you know that if you give worldliness one little space, that's all it needs to grow back to everything when you're not paying attention. And you can only afford to will one thing. You can only have one world in your heart. And it is either the things above that are in contradiction to the things of this world, or it's the things of this world. And so, worship and prayer and faith and repentance are the first steps. Remember how how often Jesus said? Daily. All the time. Martin Luther said all of life is repentance and faith. Repenting of being captured again by worldliness, believing again that my heart and mind have to be set on Christ. And that fundamental discipline of heart is spiritual sight. Seeing it. And Jesus said, if you will see it, if you believe, if you will one thing, if you set your heart and mind on Christ, your eyes will be full of light. And if your eyes are full of light, your whole life will be full of light. Let's pray. Father, as we as we think about how how important it is to become people of spiritual substance, how our very, our very life, our very being is dependent on these things, and how you've promised to do everything that's necessary. Help us at this moment to truly abandon our commitment to worldliness, to realize what it says in Colossians 3, that Christ, that when Christ, who is our life, God, if we could just, man, if we could just believe those four words. Who is our life? God, in the next six minutes, would you help all of us to look to you as we sing the song, to look to how, how glorious you are, to see you seated in the things above, and to so hate our slavery to mammon that we would that we would put it to death and we would put all of ourselves towards you and that we would take up our cross today and follow you and see how much freedom and joy and ultimately love will be produced by receiving the mind of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand with us and respond?